Welcome to the Prioritizing Prevention, Translating Science to Practice podcast. Our goal is to prioritize prevention conversations that matter. Our topic for today is celebrating coalitions with special guest, Mary Mackley Wolf. Now here's our host, Holly Raffle. Hello and welcome to season one, episode six of the Ohio Center of Excellence for Behavioral Health Prevention and Promotion podcast, Prioritizing Prevention, Translating Science I'm Holly Raffle, the faculty director of the center, and I'm so excited to be here today with Mary Makeley Wolf, the director of the Hamilton County Suicide Prevention Coalition. Mary's career of servant leadership has spanned local, regional, and statewide organizations, including leadership roles at the Ohio Suicide Prevention Foundation and Coalition for a Drug-Free Claremont County. Mary has also served as township trustee in Miami Township in Claremont County, which is my home community since 2001. Mary holds an OCPS, a BA from the University of Dayton, and an MS in Counseling and Gerontology from Wright State University. Welcome to the podcast, Mary. Thanks, Holly. Happy to be here today. I would love to start our discussion by talking a little bit about your career and the role that prevention coalitions have played in your work. Over the past 25 years, you've had the opportunity to work with various community sectors, aging, behavioral health, and local government, to name a few. You've also had the privilege of serving on many different task forces, coalitions, and community groups, working to make communities the best and healthiest they can be. I have seen you personally advocate for community ownership and local control because you believe that place matters and place can be the difference between having a vibrant, healthy life and lacking access to those determinants that allow us to be healthy. So with all that being said, I would love to hear your thoughts on the role community coalitions play in addressing social determinants of health, such as housing, transportation, education, employment, food security, and social support. Wow, that's, um, it's exciting to, to actually see at this place in time that we are doing so much in this space of acknowledging what I think those of us who've actually been doing the work for years and years saw a long time ago. But now that it's being recognized and elevated and we're better understanding what are the barriers, what, you know, the reason why we, as we're doing our prevention work, need to continue to understand what is, what are those barriers and, and how can we address them? You know, we can have the best evidence-based program in the world. But if people can't come to it because it's at a location that they don't have transportation to, or they're hungry and they're, the, the young people are not interested in the program if, they're, if their stomachs are growling. And or if we have isolated seniors out in our community and they don't know, we don't know they're there and they don't know where to go for help, all of those things become bigger problems that we have to kind of the root cause becomes why here and you keep diving down and diving down and you begin to see that this is why these problems become very, very wicked, as we say in the business. It's it's why community coalitions need to be aware of, you know, you have pockets of populations in your community that you may not be aware of that that are kind of invisible because of systemic racism or because uh, lack of access to all kinds of things. Poverty certainly is a huge determinant of a lot of outcomes that we really don't like to see. But I think that what I love about coalition most of all 
is it's boots on the ground. It's in your backyard. It's how do you make a difference right here, right now? And that's where we start with all of it. Absolutely. Thank you so much, Mary, for thinking deeply about that. And in your experience, how have you seen coalitions address social determinants of health? Like, do you have a couple of concrete examples? Some of my best examples have been when we were working in, in aging uh, coalitions. And, and what we did was literally create a um, gatekeeper program where we had mail carriers who would go out in the community and we'd notice, we would train them to be noticing things like a buildup of mail or um, there are newspapers back when newspapers used to be something people had delivered to them or building up so they could identify, hey, I think there's somebody in this community or, or there's, you know, neighbor to neighbor, you would try to keep an eye on someone who maybe was beginning to have trouble and maybe they couldn't do their yard work or whatever. You would start to see deterioration on the outside of their home. And what we did was train certain people to provide that information then. And what we used was our um, first responders, our, our firefighters and our paramedics, because they very often have a lot of interaction with older adults, because as you get older, sometimes those chronic health conditions start coming up. So we would have to do runs and you would see kind of the same people over and over again. So the idea was, how can those folks then connect people who, in the case in, in Claremont, it was Claremont Senior Services, where then a case manager would come and do a home visit. Because again, a lot of our people were homebound. They weren't able to get out. So the only way we could get services to them is we would have to go to them. They're not going to be able to come out and receive services. So that was part of what we did uh, in creating a gatekeeper program for our isolated uh, older adults that were in the community. Um, I have also seen when we're working on, um, in our drug-free community work, um, a lot of times you will see work that is in the, the area of kind of the condition in which kids are walking to school. So they're walking to school and they're seeing a lot of um, deteriorated uh, areas a lot of places where there are four different, on every corner, a, a uh, liquor store. And the idea was to use zoning and to work on signage regulations and to work on lighting because maybe that corner needed a physical change and have to have some better lighting so that it made it safer. Because again, if you don't feel safe, you can't get anywhere and, and you become fearful. And again, that, that becomes a barrier to trying to do things. So those are a couple of examples of things that I've seen recently um, in the work that I've done uh, with, with trying to address those, those social determinants of health or those, you know, those determinations in what a community looks like. Um, it really does. It Sometimes it's the broken window in your neighborhood that sends a message that we don't mean to send. And repairing a window can have a huge difference. It sounds very scary and strange, but that can make a difference. Absolutely. Thank you, Mary. And I love how the two examples you show, one, 
is, you know, community caring and community connectedness and training folks, right, to notice and pick up on those signs of the people around you. And your second example had to do with the built environment, right? So, you know, social determinants of health are so wide spanning. And so I appreciate, um, you know, you showcasing two uh, very distinct um, examples. And that really is a great segue to our next question. So Ohio's long-term commitment to community coalitions is closely related to the implementation of the Strategic Prevention Framework, or SPIP. And as our listeners know, it's a community-driven, evidence-based approach to understanding and addressing uh, the substance misuse and related behavioral health problems that our communities face. As someone who has guided community coalitions to connect that theory and practice, what role do you believe that theory and by extension, prevention science play in creating the conditions for positive behavioral health outcomes in communities. Well, I think what I love about, you know, kind of getting people excited about learning that process, learning the theory behind why we do the things we do, is it also helps us better educate about here's what we know works, here's what we know doesn't work. And I'll give you the prime example that I think of every time when I start to think about people have the best intentions in prevention, particularly with our, our young people. And, and um, when we're talking about drug prevention, we want to go out and have an assembly and get everybody, you know, emotionally charged and do a lot of things and get that fall into the realm of what we call scare tactics. And we recognize that that is not a, a actually the research and prevention science and following theory, getting people elevated like that actually doesn't work. It does the opposite. And so what, what is really cool about using uh, the prevention framework is you, you begin to help people figure out, okay, here's the problem we're trying to fix, but there's actually some methodology that we can use to get a better outcome. And, and what the idea is, let's look at the data. Let's better understand. Let's make sure that we have then capacity to do what we say we're going to do. And then if we do something, let's make sure it's evidence-based. And then we need to be able to measure it and evaluate what we did and then come together and decide. And then on top of all of that, we really want to pay very, very close attention to the cultural competence of it or the, the cultural humility of it, understanding that good evidence-based programs sometimes don't always work exactly for the population that we have. So we have to be careful that what we're introducing meshes and that it works. So what that strategic framework and understanding the theory behind it really helps you become a better decision maker. It makes you a very good hypothesis developer. And so then you're able to address a problem by really using good logic as to how you're doing it and having a method. And for me, that's what I love to see people's lights come on when they begin to understand, oh, we thought we knew that this is what the problem was, but here's some data that's saying that's not what it is, or here's some, here's some um, key stakeholder interviews that showed us we were wrong and that we need to get into this better and we need to have the right people talking to the right people. You need to have people who look like the population who are from that population being the messengers. 
And so I think we have come a long way, but I, it clearly for Ohio, I think that bringing that uh, strategic prevention framework forward for those of us in prevention gave us a way to help educate people who don't understand necessarily the science and give them a better understanding as to why that's important. Absolutely. Thank you so much, Mary. I really appreciate you kind of digging into the how and the why of the strategic prevention framework. And as someone who's worked with communities for a really long time, what would you say to those coalition leaders who um, have a coalition who may be new to the strategic prevention framework? And so that coalition leaders trying to introduce the use of that framework into coalition work and is met maybe with some resistance about, you know, why do we have to stop? Why do we have to collect data? Why do we have to think about this? What would you say to that coalition leader who is trying to introduce that science-driven way of doing prevention? Well, you know, it's funny because I, in my personal experience, I actually find the youth a little bit more open to understanding how to, how to do things from a more methodical way than, than my adults who are working from, you know, depending on what, what subject matter we're on, um, they're the ones who are a little bit harder to get engaged. But definitely with youth, you know, a lot of it is they are really good at, uh, at a lot of things and technology is absolutely one of them. And I think in some ways, if you're able to utilize the strengths of the youth you have in your group, and if you can engage them from a, 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 a strengths-based mindset saying, you know, you guys have all of this knowledge and, you know, this, this data is really important. I think the other thing is, is that you're guiding, you're guiding them along, but you also have to understand that sometimes maybe that if they're planning an event and they're forgetting key elements, it's okay to let people fail because that's a growth mindset opportunity. It, it's like, well, let's try this thing the way we set it up and then see what happens and then be able to go back and say, okay, what would we do differently? Because that's part of the evaluation that everybody does. So sometimes what we found is if our kids really, really wanted to do something a certain way, now granted, we, we kind of would, we, we really kind of made sure that we didn't do scare tactics, mainly because we understand the trauma that a lot of kids have had, particularly in counties where you've had high rates of overdoses and family, um, family drama and things that have happened during the opiate epidemic that really impacted young people. So there were a lot of young people that wanted to come and do something because they were, they were the direct recipients of having family disruption or they were worried about their parents or they had lost a family member to an overdose. And so they were very raw, but they wanted to do something. So part of it is working through meeting your young people where they are, doing what you can to support and empower them to, to better understand, okay, we really want to make a difference. Let's try this method. And I found that and believing that they had something to contribute and helping them grow that sense of self made a big, big difference. And that's kind of how we initiated some of the things we wanted to do in our community. Thank you so much for that. And I wonder if the same is true for adults, right? Is, is if adults are reticent to use the strategic prevention framework, 
Um, how do you think using that strengths-based approach would be uh, helpful in an adult coalition? It, and I think you're right. In some ways, it's the same. It's the same thing. Um, adults are the first ones that want to use scare tactics. That, you know, they want to do the well. That you know, we, we need to do the mock crash because that's uh, that scared me when I was a kid and whatever. And so sometimes what I find is we we again we have people that have tremendous strengths and they they have great relationships. They're really good at organizing things. Um, they may be incredibly talented, but for me that my go-to was, I love epidemiologists and health people who are on a coalition because they're so good at data. And I think that sometimes, you know, where you have somebody who's really good at marketing. And so you might have an idea of what you want to do. And then you let, you let that person help create what you want to do. And then we can have a discussion about, well, here's, here's what we would have to add to a mock crash to make sure that we weren't traumatizing people, where we would have to make it more prevention-y, as we say in the business. We need to prevention it up a little. Um, because at the end of the day, nobody, most adults, when we would talk about drug prevention with youth, understood that we are trying to do more harm. And I think that they don't always understand that, you know, the brain development that youth have, all of those interesting elements of prevention science that we have to consider when we're creating things, it's just new learning for them. So it's meeting people where they are with their strengths and then adding a little bit more information so that they're able to use those strengths in ways that are, that are very powerfully helpful and not going to cause damage. Absolutely. I love that. And what I love the most is you mentioned so many different types of strengths and so many different types of people. In your previous role at the Ohio Suicide Prevention Foundation, you were in a position to encourage coalition leaders to include broad-based participation in suicide prevention efforts. Um, I've heard you say multiple times, let's include diverse culture and ethnic groups. Let's include the people and the families that are most affected by suicide. Also thinking about who in your community has influence other service organizations who may be interested in the cause, as well as, you know, the traditional community sectors, parents, teachers, law enforcement, business, uh, faith-based community, healthcare providers, and, and, and those types. Um, so in short, I'm sure that uh, we can agree that broad-based participation is key with community coalition work. In your experience as a coalition community leader, why is that broad-based participation so important? And why did you champion that um, when you were working with the Suicide Prevention Coalitions in your previous role? Well, you know, it, I think, again, it goes back to the principle that, that I was, um, you know, that I picked up along the way that, that that concept of community. And community is very, very, very broad-based. And then when you're, when you're talking about a particular uh, behavioral problem of, of concern, um, what you realize is that everybody comes with a different lens and everybody brings a different idea or have it had an impact in a different way. And if we forget to include, we're not going to have that complete picture of what's actually happening in that community. So it's that idea of nothing about us without us, that we should not be leading anyone out. If you are impacted 
by that particular situation. We need to hear from you because you're part of the community. And it's that, that sense of connection. It's that sense of ownership. It goes across so many, many things. It's not that it's just one person. It's that idea that we all belong here. Everybody does. And I think with suicide prevention, it's tricky because folks who have lost someone by suicide may or may not be in an emotional place where they can be part of something immediately. They may need to go through some processing for themselves, but they are so key for us to better understand what happened here. You know, what, what did we miss? What gap did we not see? How could we better, um, how can we better respond? So for example, what you've seen over the years is a change in language. So we don't say that people committed suicide anymore. We say people died by suicide because that's a different, it's a destigmatizing way. And and how am working with our reporters at in media, how they talk about uh, suicide can actually inadvertently cause contagion for very vulnerable populations. So it's a trickier area to work in. It's not impossible, but we need everybody there to talk about it. We need people who have had, um, you know, who've had ideations or attempt survivors. We need lost survivors. But we also need those system people. We need the people who are interacting. We need the, the um, first responders. We also need to have uh, the behavioral health people at the table, but we also need the business community because guess what? It does impact everything. That particular issue of suicide, just like uh, mental health and wellness and substance use work all cross over each other. And so the more that we're able to have everyone at the table looking at solutions, bringing ideas and talking about this is not okay, we thought this would work, but this not working here or it's not working with this group and here's why. And so, you know, we're, we're now seeing that we have missed the boat uh, in the Black suicide community that we were not paying attention to data that has been there and we were not uh, responding in a way that we should have been. And so we're working right now very much about um, how do you bring that um, concept forward Likewise, working in, in lethal means, um, what you're trying to do is work with gun owners, not create an adversarial situation where we're not going to get policy change because everyone's going to, you know, take sides and make it at a negative political situation. So I think that for me, nothing about us without us is such an, a powerful idea because everyone can contribute. Everybody is part of the solution. And that's what's so exciting about doing coalition work. Thank you, Mary. And what would you say out there to those coalition leaders? You know, what can I do to encourage meaningful community participation? How do I have that come with me attitude and bring people uh, along? Well, I think you have to first be, um, you know, you really have to be a good listener. I, I think a lot of it is letting people come to the table, inviting people to come to the table. 
whether you can do a community um, gathering and invite people, whether it's going individually to a particular church or a faith faith tradition and talking to people and and making it comfortable. Maybe it's doing things like uh, having a community readiness assessment, which is a wonderful tool for communities where you literally go out and with a very, very good process, very uh, intentional process, talk about, you know, how do you feel as a key stakeholder? You can pick certain people that, that have a, um, an, a influence in an area that you're looking for. You could do things like that. I think it's all about being open and understanding that everybody has something to contribute. And so it is, it's you as a leader sometimes have to be very patient. It's hurting cats, as we all know, and it can be very frustrating. However, if you truly are somebody that wants to see community level change, there is nothing better than having one of those meetings where everybody's you know, it's like, oh, everybody's on all cylinders and everybody's beginning to listen to each other. And you're creating an atmosphere of, you know, we're caring about this. And so some of it is patience. Some of it is um, understanding relationships. So, you know, I'm not going to say extroverts have the uh, advantage in being prevention people or coalition people, but it, it, if you're an introvert, you're going to need to have a lot of energy to work on your coalition uh, folks because, you know, people have the best of intention. And I think that's where I always come from. People are here because they care. And so if I can keep that in my mind as a, as a coalition leader, um, I think that opens up the idea. And again, somebody might have a, a, an awful idea and you're thinking to yourself, oh my gosh, that's, that's terrible. But that person is still coming there. And that person then has an opportunity to learn from everyone and, and become, you know, we can take the idea and morph it enough so that it, it's no longer a scare tactic, for example. So I think that for me, it is about just being patient, but also connect with other coalition leaders. Um, those people become your mentors. Talk to somebody or look at a community that's doing something and ask them, you know, how are you doing this? Or what are you doing? Find a mentor in prevention. Find a coach. Find somebody that you can, when you're having a bad day, you're able to share those frustrations. Because this is probably the hardest work you'll ever do. But honestly, it's the most rewarding as well. Mary, thank you so much. And you touched on so many things. You touched on interpersonal skills that are really important, relationship building skills that are really important. Um, help seeking skills and finding a mentor, but you also talked about prevention science and community readiness. So when you want to bring people together, there are intentional and specific things prevention specialists can do. And you really um, pulled a lot out of your personal toolbox. And thank you for sharing them with our listeners. I want to conclude our conversation um, just talking about coalition resources that are available to our listeners, because I know folks who are listening, um, you know, this conversation really is the spark or the beginning, right? And, and we want to make sure that folks are connected um, so they can enhance their practice. Uh, in May of 2023, this year, you coordinated the Ohio Coalition Institute Summit, and I know you were core to the inception of the institute. The Ohio Coalition Institute is designed to provide resources, mentoring, and support 
to all types of coalitions throughout Ohio, including uh, prevention coalitions. So for our audience members who may be interested in starting or strengthening coalitions, can you talk about some of your favorite coalition resources? Well, I quite frankly, I, I love that the idea, as I said before, of when, when you're a coalition person, the first thing you need to understand is, you know, what kind of community are you dealing with? So, so I will tell you that, that community readiness assessment is a, is a fabulous, fabulous tool. Um, it's something that, that is incredibly important because you know, a lot of times we end up getting big pots of money and we have these time limits on how we need to spend it. And a lot of, you know, things that that become very scary because, you, you know, you have this responsibility and you're trying to do something. But if you go out full force on an effort that falls flat, you don't look so good to your funder and you don't feel so good as a community that you did something, but nothing, you know, it didn't go the way you wanted it to. So I, I tell people that, you know, having that understanding of how ready is the community for what we're trying to talk about? Do they even know that this problem exists? So that's, that's a tool that, that you can absolutely get. And, and Holly, you have done tremendous work in, and Ohio University has in training people on all kinds of wonderful uh, theory and and how to use these tools. So that's part of what OS, the uh, Ohio Coalition Institute has. Um, it's a lot of training opportunities. So if you're able to right now, I believe it's next week, they're going to um, be giving out the very first stipends and grants funding for the uh, Fundamentals for Coalition Development. So the idea is taking people through a year-long process where they will have eight uh, two-hour sessions, but embedded in that is also deliverables on different parts of how you develop a coalition. What do you need to do? What are the steps? It's based on the wonderful book, uh, Ignite, from Dr. Fran Butterfoss, who we were really happy could be at that event in May. We gave her the, an, an amazing award, so we, that was wonderful. Um, I think that in doing in doing that, but th this idea of coaching and mentoring, I think, is hugely important because as you're learning, sometimes you need reinforcement as to what you've learned, so that that theory to practice becomes how do you keep doing that? And what you sometimes need is to well, I thought I understood this, but I'm not 100. percent So part of that training opportunity that's being offered includes having uh, a couple of hours a month of a mentor slash coach that can work with you uh, on figuring things out. But I think that any number of, I think coming to the um, COE website, you will find those resources. Uh, the Ohio Coalition Institute has a, has a uh, website as well. Just Google Ohio Coalition Institute and it'll pop up for you. It will get built out because it is the beginning stages of everything. And thank you. I mean, as bad as it was to have COVID, the amount of COVID dollars that have allowed us to do things that we never thought we were going to be able to do has been spectacular. So uh, much appreciation to the prevention um, department at the Ohio Mental Health and Addiction Services. And, and they really saw the need that we have that cuts across all types of coalitions. 
there is a formula that gets a best practice coalition. So I keep encouraging people, if you want to learn more, get involved with what you guys are doing at the Center of Excellence, get involved with uh, learning, 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 and be a lifelong learner, because this is what I love the most about prevention. You never really stop learning. You're learning all the time. You couldn't have said it better. Every day I learned something and I learned so much from this conversation today. And all of those links you referenced, we'll put in our show notes for our listeners. So uh, those of you who are out for a walk or who are driving from, you know, prevention sites as site, um, know that you can just link in the show notes and get all of these resources uh, that Mary's talked about. Mary, I could sit and talk to you forever and I love every opportunity that we have to connect, but it's time to lay on this plane. And so we, uh, I always ask our uh, guests a series of questions that are usually this or that questions um, for our listeners to get to know you better. And the first one I have is, would you rather travel the world for a year, all expenses paid, or have $40,000 to spend on whatever you want? Um, I would say I would, I would do the first one, travel, all expenses paid per year. That would be fun. Absolutely. And I've been waiting for the right person to ask this next question too, because this question can divide household. It can frustrate you when you go to a hotel. And because you and I are from the same county and we've known each other for years and years, I feel comfortable asking you this. So the toilet paper roll, do you like it to come over top like a beard or through the back like a mullet? I like the beard. And if you look at how it was designed, that's exactly how it's supposed to be. <laughs> Thank you. I knew you'd be the best person and you would really know what I was saying. When I asked you that. <laughs> um, and the, finally, the question I ask all of our guests, you're reaching into that candy dish and you are looking for those M&Ms. Are you a plain or peanut person? You know, it depends on the day, but I would have to say... Um, more, more often than not, I tend to like the peanut M&Ms better because I feel I feel like it is not as much candy because there's a nut in there. So you're getting your protein. Exactly. My protein's counterbalancing the carbs. Mary, I am forever grateful for you for spending half an hour with us and our listeners. Um, I know that everyone will get so much from this conversation about coalition, and I am so grateful for your time. And to all of our listeners out here, be sure to follow us on your favorite podcast um, app and subscribe so you know when our, our episodes come out. And this concludes season one, episode six of Prioritizing Prevention, Translating Science to Practice. This has been the Prioritizing Prevention podcast. For more episodes, you can find us on Spotify, YouTube, Google Play, Apple Music, and many more. This program is funded by Ohio Mental Health and Addiction Services. And for more information about us, please visit preventioncoe.ohio.gov. Thank you for listening.